Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program is Professor Mark Bauerlein talking about the digital divide. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. show. Well, the explosion of internet technologies for disseminating and contributing information has fundamentally changed the way that we live. But whether such changes are a positive thing remains an open question. How has digital technology changed ourselves and our society, and what does this mean for the future? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor Mark Bauerlein. Professor Bauerlein is a professor of English at Emory University and has worked as a director of research and analysis at the National Endowment for the Arts. Author of the best-selling book, The Dumbest Generation, his new compilation, The Digital Divide, Arguments for and Against Facebook, Google, Texting, and the Age of Social Networking, explores this issue for a general audience. And Professor Bauerlein, we're very uh, pleased to have you today on the Grok Science Show. I'm glad to join you. Well, certainly our pleasure, and this is really a great compilation of work here that you've assembled, The Digital Divide, in which you look really at this issue of, of the effects of all the uh, new Internet technologies on our lives. Given this impact that the Internet has had in terms of information technology, what really are the downsides? Well, it, the impact has been so positive in so many areas that almost to talk about any downside is, is almost just grumpiness. I mean, if you look at what digital technology has done for science, for medicine, for communications, for entertainment, and in so many other ways, just helping people out that the digital technologies provide, we realize that the only places in which it means anything to raise negative issues is is really in people's personal lives or their leisure lives and how that might have an effect on aspects of our culture. So, I mean, the fact that you can walk outside at the airport and just make a phone call and say to someone coming to get you, I'm standing underneath the Delta baggage claim sign. Who wants to give that up? So we recognize the miracles and the wonders of digital technology. We only look at the, the negative voices, really can only look at personal choices, personal behaviors, whether it is a good thing or not that teenagers who possess a mobile device average every month 3,339 text messages. Can we ask questions about that? Can we wonder whether the instant communications have made news and journalism stronger? more informative and less less captive to marketing and political issues. Those are those are places to open the question. Now, I came down pretty hard on young people with digital devices in their hands. I think that ultimately teenagers who do have a cell phone and a and a Facebook account and all the other tools that go along with digital technology uh, risk uh, hindering their intellectual development. 
when they spend too much time with these tools. The main reason being that not the tools themselves being a problem, not the material available on the web being the problem. I mean, the web is a great big window onto the world of history and science and foreign affairs and fine art, and there's more superb, superior, intelligent material available than ever before. But that's not what teenagers are interested in. And 15-year-olds care about other 15-year-olds. And they use these tools to maintain contact with one another, which means these tools are fundamentally, for them, a instrument of peer pressure, of peer absorption, of sending pictures back and forth of the last week's party, of reporting on the latest occasions in the schoolyard or the cafeteria. And the problem with that, in turn, is that peer pressure is anti-intellectual. Youth culture is anti-knowledge, anti-eloquence, anti-historical understanding. And the more we allow peer-to-peer contact in young people's out-of-school lives, the less they undergo, we'll just say, adult pressure. They don't have to sit there and listen to their parents talk about politics or money at the dinner table. They can just put their hands beneath the edge and start tapping. They can sit in the back seat of their parents' car while driving across Route 40 in the middle of New Mexico and conduct a social life. They don't have to listen to their parents. They don't have to listen to the intelligent radio that may be on. So, And they're, and they're not using those tools to tap into all of the, again, abundant, intelligent material on the web. So that, that that's where I come down. But the digital age is such a fluctuating, dynamic, unpredictable world that just getting one answer, one opinion about it, it doesn't make much sense. I mean, I don't have the whole truth about the digital age, and that's why I put this anthology together. You have contributors here who think that Wikipedia and Facebook are extraordinary advances in collective intelligence. And you have a few other voices who regard Wikipedia and Facebook as the onset of a new dark age. <laughs> and it's important to get these polarities together into, into one volume, let people look through them, hear the back and forth, and make up their own minds. So in your view, then, the um, advent of these technologies really makes youth culture, in a sense, insular. It, it, exactly. I mean, the potential is there, of course. But you're operating against old, fundamental, long-standing pressures of young people to pay attention to one another. I mean, think of what high school is like for a lot of 17-year-olds. It's a gauntlet of judgment. All the tribalisms are in place, the in-crowd and the weirdos and the geeks and the, and the athletes and the cheerleaders, all the groupings that take place and and for many for many kids the pressure they feel to fit in to find your friends to avoid others to get in a comfort zone well that's what the adolescent ego wants it's a fragile time of life and so not to feel isolated not to feel shunned which is the worst thing that a 17 year old can experience 
Well, much of life is geared toward that. I have to dress in the right way. I have to know the right songs. I have to have the right Facebook page. That's what their life is is motivated by. And if we don't find ways of limiting that, if we don't expose them to adult pressures during these years when they're really supposed to be intellectually growing, well, we're we're, we're missing out. I mean, if if they're if they're spending all of their leisure time in high school and college, just connecting with one another, that they're missing precious years in which they might go to a museum, uh, learn a musical instrument, find some interests that might fascinate them that are intellectual interests, like getting involved in politics. They are involved with one another. As one, one person put it, they lead a hyper-social life. When Pew Research they do these ongoing studies of Internet and technology and youth. Their last study of teens and cell phones, they were astounded at the number of teenagers who sleep with the cell phone under their pillow in the on position because they want to be awakened at 2 in the morning if a cell, a text message comes through. That kind of pressure means even when they're at home, disconnected and logged off, they sense there's something going on in my social world. Something is happening. A picture might be passed back and forth. A breakup may may have happened. I mean, students leave my class, and the first thing they do is flip open the cell phone to see if any messages came through. And they don't have joy on their faces. They, they have some concern because they don't know where they stand. In the last hour and a half, news could be coming through. Everyone could be meeting somewhere, and you're five minutes late, and you want to get there. You don't want to, you don't want to be left out. So that kind of Peer pressure, again, pulls them away from intellectual pursuits. Reading books, and I don't mean the classics. And when I say museums, I don't mean going and look at great things of civilization, any kind of historic site. You're going to a bookstore and browsing around. You're looking at sports books or anything that would take them out of their social circuit is, is fine. I'm not, I'm not saying we all need to go to the library and sit there and read you know, Shakespeare. No, you, you temper your your desire for that, but you, you do say, come on, come on, you guys, put that cell phone away for a while. You don't have to make a call. Sit here and listen to some good radio. Watch C-SPAN for a while. Get away from your friends, but that's harder and harder to do when the option is right there. They can do it any time. They never have to be alone. In some sense, these arguments, sort of reiterations of past generations have always complained about youth culture is just a little more amplified now with the technology. Is this just not some neo-Luddite critique on, on the new system, or is there any evidence that these new technologies are hindering development in the long run? Well, you're right. Every technological advent brings concern along with enthusiasm. And sometimes the concern has to do with a loss of authority. You know, the church, the Catholic church, didn't like vernacular translations of the Bible. And I, I think that that's okay as long as we have an open debate. You know, we don't want to shut down the debate. And, and some voices of caution, voices of alarm, even if they verge into alarmist perspectives, well, that, that's, that's going to shake out over time. And one hopes that they contribute to the discussion in that they blunt some of the hype and the enthusiasm that we have. 
So I, I think I think what you make is a, is a fair point. But when we look at we look at the concern not as wrong, but as maybe serving an instrumental purpose in helping us assimilate these new technologies in wiser ways. Now, the second point implied there is that don't old people always grumble about about uh, new things coming along, especially related to the youth. In fact, aren't they always complaining about the young people? And I said, yes, for millennia, old people complain about young people, but I think that's part of their job. I think that's one of our responsibilities as elders to rebuke the 17-year-old for being an adolescent, for being adolescent, for thinking, you know, that what happens in in high school is of earth-shaking significance, for believing that what happened 30 years ago doesn't matter. That's just primeval times. These are just a standard stern voice that helps young people grow up. And it's also good for young people to resent that to argue back and to say, well, you're getting too old, you're getting a little narrow-minded, you don't really appreciate new things. I think that's actually a healthy engagement to happen and that one thinks that out of that tension, one gets a healthier society, a more intelligent society. So that's the way, the way I put, uh, the way I put my, my criticism. Now, here's your last point. Do we really have evidence that are hindering young people's intellectual development. Not solid and firm causal evidence. No. We have a lot of data that demonstrate shifting activities and some declines, some deteriorations of knowledge and skills among young Americans. But really, the best you can do is form correlations of, of that data. For instance, we find that young people read fewer books than they did before on their own. They read a lot less literature on their own. I think those were reliable surveys uh, that came out, and it makes sense. 30 years ago, you didn't have uh, video games, the web, Facebook, all these other options on the menu of leisure time. So you, you simply didn't have as many diversions to, to do as you did before. As you get new tools coming along, they're going to pull a little time away from other activities, one of them being reading, reading books. Now, TV time, we were actually beginning to see a little bit of a cut into TV time uh, because, because of the technology. But for someone, I'm, I'm an English teacher, I regard the reading of books outside of class, on your own, over summer or Christmas vacation. I regard that as a crucial intellectual activity. And it could be, again, fun books. But just reading time builds vocabulary. It builds imagination. When you read a book, you have to visualize characters and settings. You're not just provided them as the TV does or the, or the video game. Now, if we find that... Text messaging is replacing that reading time. There, there be a pretty firm correlation one could draw there. I, I, I caution that. I warn about that. Now, another curious thing is young people are reading and writing more words than ever before. They word process 
a lot more than kids did 30 or 40 years ago. Question then, why is it that reading scores for high school students have gone down since the early 90s before all these tools hit the market? Reading scores are worse. Reading comprehension is worse on national reading scores. Why is it that in spite of all the writing that students do on their own, that SAT writing scores have gone down in the last five years. As texting has gone shot upward, writing scores have gone down. Why is it that in college, remedial coursework in writing keeps going up? More students have to, have to take pre-college courses. Why is it that when they poll college teachers, the biggest place where they say they are worse than before is in writing? So, again... That's data. That doesn't prove anything. But you know a strong correlation can mean something. We have to interpret that, and we have to try to come up with more controlled experiments. So I, I, I admit, these are, these are warning signals that, that, that I sound, not, not firm scientific arguments. But I, I think it's worth, I think they're worth heeding. And so the danger of this is that the, the sort of generational passage of information and culture is just going to be lost? I, I, I think that... Not that it's lost, but it is rendered thinner, more more superficial. Everyone knows, everyone will know about the Gettysburg Address, and young people can always look up the Gettysburg Address anytime they need it. Two clicks, and you're there. The problem is, if the Gettysburg Address just becomes information, something for them to retrieve instead of something to absorb deeply as Americans, as people interested in history, as people interested in civic principles of their own citizenship. I mean, to, to say the meaning of Lincoln's phrase, the last full measure of devotion, well, they should absorb that more deeply, not just make it, again, information to retrieve and pass along, but as something to take within their own character, to make as part of their reservoir of, of, of thought and knowledge and, and, and value. That is the, the, the concern, that the speed, the availability, which is wonderful in so many contexts, in the context of the development of, of an individual mind, the formation of responsible citizens and, and, and knowledgeable intellects, that, that there we see some, some danger signs. You, you, you can't process this material so fast. You can't just you know, retrieve it, write a few comments, and then pass it along. We've got, to, we've got to slow down and take more time with it. All the tools encourage them for a faster processing. So given this potential problem of it, and also that these technologies are likely here to stay, what do we do then? Well, one thing we don't do is take the Luddite option. That's senseless, and it fails to appreciate, again, the wondrous miracles of digital technology. Here's what we do. In our leisure lives, we simply reserve some portion of that, of those hours for non-digital activity. That could be reading a book, 
It could be going over the newspaper in, in print form. It could be sitting and watching C-SPAN or listening. You know, it, 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 no, no, I, I was wrong when I said non-digital. It could be listening to your show. But without interruption, pay attention to the conversation. Listen to what people are saying. Don't have other dialogue boxes open on your computer. At the same time, don't multitask this. So some period in the day, an hour, for linear, slow, thought, words, reading, books, that's all. You know, I have a six-year-old boy. If I have an hour of reading time with him, we go over books. It, it could be Captain Underpants or it could be The Odyssey. Uh, if I have that time with him, I don't mind if he goes back and, and gets on, on a website and plays games or, or, or looks at dinosaurs. That's fine. If I just reserve a critical mass of, of time in the evening for non-multitask, non-stimulation, now, we, we don't need that multiple stimulation all the time. And, and that's my simple homespun advice. Uh, the book, again, uh, is called The Digital Divide, Arguments for and Against Facebook, Google, Texting, and the Age of Social Networking. And uh, Professor Bowerline, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Okay. If you have a few seconds, we would quickly like to play our game, the Grokatron 5000. Let's do it. Here we go. It's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 chosen the topic, crossing into the digital divide or left behind. So for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 like to know if you think they are crossing the digital divide or will be left behind and maybe a little reason why. Professor Byerline, ready to play the game? I am. Okay, here we go. Person number one, crossing the digital divide or left behind, it's the actor Charlie Sheen. <laughs> <laughs> left behind. Although he's entertaining, you know, in short doses. Oh, well, number two, television doctor, Dr. Phil. Uh, Dr. Phil. Dr. Phil will be with us because this form of self-absorption, and the the emphasis on the the personal drama of ordinary lives is is too compelling for too many people. Uh, I find it uh, impossible to work up enough in, enough interest in these people's lives, but uh, more and more people do. So I, I think that will endure. Uh, actually, actually, the digital divide. Voyeurism loves digital things. <laughs> Uh, number three, it's the Oracle founder, Larry Ellison. Uh, well, certainly, he's crossing the digital <laughs> That's right, he's at the front. Yeah. Uh, number four, it's the uh, golfer, Tiger Woods. Left behind. Probably would be uh, grateful people weren't paying attention to him these days. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's right. Wait, would, he, would he have been caught in a pre-digital time? Mm-hmm. I can't remember the details. Was it, was it a cell phone that, that was part of that? Then, then, okay, yeah. there, there you go. Yeah. yeah left behind. <laughs> uh, finally, number five, crossing the divide or left behind, it's the president, Barack Obama. Left behind. Hmm. I, well, I, I think that when President Obama uh, leaves office, I, I think he will largely disappear. Digital, digital age or non-digital age, 
uh, I, I'm not sure that his presidency has been successful. I think he's going to be reelected. Uh, but I, I think there will be a huge letdown hmm. after, after he leaves. And he's going to have to think of something different. Not just found another research or presidential center that will do charitable things. I think he's going to want to find something different to do, and that may be hard. That may be hard for him to envision. Well, well of course, he'll be making $100,000 every time he gives a speech. So, <laughs> you know, that, that'll be hard to turn down. That's uh, not something uh, too terrible like for him. All right. Well, I um, want to thank you very much for sticking around, playing our game, and again, uh, talking about the book. It's called The Digital Divide, Arguments for and Against Facebook, Google, Texting, and the Age of Social Networking. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That was great. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. <laughs>